Hi, I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are writers, poets, and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Some topics I explore are, what is the author responding to? What are the possible tensions between author, text, and audience? Whose interpretations matter? What could be a miscitation? And how language is used and constructed? My guest today is Soon Wiley, who is originally from Nyack, New York, and attended Connecticut College and Wichita State University, where he received an MFA. His writing has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize and earned him fellowships in Wyoming and France. When We Fell Apart is his debut novel. So I want to begin the conversation with maybe asking some background information about your book, When We Fell Apart. I'm really interested in how you crafted the story. Did you already have in mind that you wanted some mystery element to it? And was there a research aspect about it? Because a lot of it talks about student life and um, and the differences between living in America and living in Korea, especially in Seoul. What did you have in mind by crafting such a complex story about complex people? So I think your first question is a little more about kind of like form, right? And mm. how it how it came to be. So, and I'm I'm so bad at remembering two parters, but I'll remember to remember that second part of the question. The book actually started very differently from where it kind of is now. So when I first started working on the book, it was only written from Min's perspective, and it was actually written from first person. I was drafting it and I wasn't really sure where it was going. I didn't really expect anything to come of it in terms of it being published. Um, <laughs> so I worked on that for about a year and a half and I felt like it was okay. And Eugene, who's kind of the other character, who's the protagonist is Min and Eugene's his girlfriend and she's the one that's kind of died under these mysterious circumstances. And when I finished that initial draft of the book, it felt a little bit weird to have Min kind of like find himself through the death of his girlfriend and for us not to hear from her. So at that point, I basically realized that I needed to add a second point of view. And when I actually wrote Eugene's sections, and I also wrote her sections for first person, but I wrote them completely independent from Min's. And then I don't know, maybe here, like three or four, I put them together. So I knew I wanted alternating chapters and I knew that I had these two points of view and I essentially kind of like stuck them together, like puzzle pieces or something. And I, I don't recommend, by the way, any novelist doing that because it was like a, to a total nightmare in terms of the process. But that's essentially how the book kind of came to be in terms of you have these two kinds of perspectives. So I think in, in terms of background research, I have kind of more shared experience probably with men. You know, I lived in Seoul for a year after I graduated college in 2009. I wasn't planning on writing a book at the time. I was working on mostly short stories, but I was teaching English as a second language there. And I lived there for a year. I was working a lot. And I think some of my experiences are, are similar to some of the things that men experience in terms of just kind of adjusting to a different culture. Obviously, I'm also biracial. I'm also half Korean like Min. So I think there are things in the book that Min experiences that I probably, you know, I experienced some of them or to some extent I experienced them. 
So the research aspect primarily for his chapters was mostly around remembering soul and remembering what it was like to live there and just like remembering sensory details. For Eugene's sections, her sections of the book open a little bit before she's met Min. The book opens with her in high school. I'm not big on research, but I did have to spend a lot of time researching like high school academic calendars in Korea because I wanted to get the dates of graduation right. When are you going to college? How many years? When do you take certain exams? I think your other question was more about kind of like the psyche of, of a female high school student. I think um, that was more just kind of me imagining and kind of putting myself in the place of, of this character and thinking about what she might think about and what she might feel like. I think it was probably much easier to write since I wrote her chapters after Min's. Mm-hmm. I had already written about her a lot initially in the first draft. It's just that she had never gotten a point of view. So by the time I finally got around to writing her chapters, it kind of, it came quite easily to me because she was already this kind of really fully formed character. Mm-hmm. We have two main characters, Min and Eugene. And you you already talked about how it was supposed to be a story about Min and then you included Eugene's perspective. And I want to ask you about the tenses because Min He's third person. As we read mm-hmm. it, he's third person. And then Eugene has more agency. She narrates I explicitly. So when you decided to do that kind of stylistic choice, why did you have the two characters speak in different right. tenses? Yeah. So the um kind of two big reasons. I had I had referenced the fact that I had started when I wrote men's sections, they were in first person. Mm-hmm. And naturally, then, Eugene's sections also, it made sense. In the final draft of the book, Min is in third person, so there is a narrator um, mm-hmm. that isn't him. For Eugene, it was important to me because I, I like the word you used was agency. So because the book opens with her ascent, the reader knowing that she's dead, mm-hmm. it was important to me to give her a voice and also to have her be able to tell her own story, even though she's not there in Min's kind of storyline. So first person to me felt the most kind of natural way to go. I think there's also an element of like a confessional almost that that Eugene is basically bearing her secrets, right? Or admitting or revealing to the reader what has happened, which I think always it makes the most sense to write in first person when you're writing a story like that. For Min's sections in the early drafts of the book when they were in first person, and this is a very kind of technical answer, but I found it very difficult to write a mystery story where the narrator, the protagonist, the person that is finding information out, which is basically the reader's vehicle to get information, I found it difficult to write when that person is also narrating the story, Mm -hmm. Um, especially if that person is reliable. So like, Sometimes I think mystery novels work when you have an unreliable first-person narrator, right? We can mm-hmm. also debate whether any narrator can be reliable. But so Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro is a great, not necessarily a mystery novel, but what makes that first-person narrator great is like, he isn't reliable, right? And we're kind of constantly questioning, okay, is he really telling us what's happened? So for Min, I realized that because he was the one telling the story, it was kind of dragging the story down a little bit. And so I switched to to close third or what some people call third person limited. So we only have access to what he knows. 
well, we have this kind of external narrator that can describe his actions. And so that was really a craft decision that I knew that in order, or at least for me, in order to move the plot and give the reader this sense of like me finding out what's happened, the minute that I switched to third person, that kind of gave me some freedom that I didn't have when I was writing from first person. I don't know how to say this without. <laughs> I had asked you about like this mystery element and maybe it's because Min is the one having to unfold it. And then Yujin's testimonies were kind of her also thinking about her place in the world. I'm not saying it was anticlimactic, mm-hmm. but the sense of mystery, was it really a mystery? The ending felt kind of, like I felt like even Min was kind of disappointed. Like there was no big mm-hmm. evil character. It was just kind of like, he couldn't come to terms with what he realized was just kind of what had happened to Yujin wasn't just a big, it wasn't a big plot point. Maybe that was his crisis, was realizing that what Yujin felt, there was no big mystery to it. And I I, I felt funny asking you if it was a mystery, because I think it almost felt like you were leading us into a mystery, but also kind of... Not disappointing. De- deconstructing yes, it or yes. yeah, critiquing um, it. Yeah. At the end of the scene between um Min and Eugene's father, mm-hmm. I was waiting for the big climax, but then it was kind of like Yeah. <laughs> and that's how I felt. I don't know when you were talking during your um author tours, did you have similar sentiments about yeah. this mystery that maybe is not so much as a mystery as we thought it would be? Yeah. One of the things I think that the book at least that I was trying to do is trying to thread that needle between kind of mystery and and literary novel. But yeah, I, I think your your characterization of the book is right, right? It's it's not this kind of white knuckle thriller or suspense novel where you kind of have all the familiar moves of a mm-hmm. of a mystery book. I'm trying to think about how to answer this without giving too much away, but I think the the thing about the structure of the book is there are things that the reader knows because they have access to Eugene's point of view mm-hmm. that Min never finds out. So I think that moment that you're referencing, while it might be unsatisfying. So if you only had Min's narrative, right? right. I think that you would kind of feel a little bit, he certainly, I think, is doesn't feel like the ending that he thought or the answers right. that he was going to get, he mm-hmm. doesn't get. Um, and I think I was probably trying to have my cake and eat it too mm-hmm. as a writer, like that I was hoping, I think, that because the reader knows, mm-hmm. because they have access to Eugene's chapters, they know the truth, they know what mm-hmm. happened. But Min is kind of left to maybe come to terms with some things that he he isn't as kind of willing to do. But yeah, I think it's been interesting. I've had in the very few chats that I've had with readers, I've had some people insist that they've said, you know, well, I'm only going to cite the good things. But some people have said, you know, oh, I, and I'm just painting with broad strokes here, but they've said, I I read it in two nights or I couldn't put it down. Mm -hmm. And I feel like those are usually things that you you attach to mystery novels, right? Where the reason you can't put it down is because you want to find out. Mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z. But then I've also had readers kind of insist that it is a very literary novel, that it isn't just a mystery and that there are all sorts of literary things. But 
I I like your point because I mean it was very intentional on my part that I wanted to kind of uh, this is probably getting a little bit too meta, but the book itself is a little bit of a meta commentary on mystery genres themselves, mm -hmm. right? That we read mystery novels to get specific answers and it's all very clear cut. But I, I knew that when I was writing the book, I didn't want to kind of give that very, maybe satisfying, but also for me, like a very clear cut answer. Yeah. I like that men didn't really... You know how in mystery novels or just the conventional mystery character, there's a hero and he knows everything. He solves everything. I kind of like that men, there was something he recognized at the end that he won't know everything, but he was okay with that. So I hope I didn't spoil anything. No, I, I don't okay. think so. I mean, I, I think that's that's part of, you know, one of the the main themes of the book, I think, mm -hmm. is about knowing and not knowing mm -hmm. and also accepting what is unknowable and what is knowable. And right. I mean, one of the reasons we love reading mystery novels is because there's a very like knowable, right? We don't know, we don't know. And then mm -hmm. at the end, we know. It'll be interesting to to hear the reaction from readers because I, I think when I wrote the ending and when we kind of finalized it, I knew, I, I suspected that some readers would say, well, this isn't really right. This isn't kind of like the satisfying no, tropey yeah. ending that I was expecting. I was really hesitant. I didn't want to say I was uns because that would mean <laughs> that I had expectations and I'm pretty open-minded as a reader. <laughs> um, so I want to think about kind of the representation aspect in your novel. So I've been thinking through a lot of discourses about CRT and especially what it means within Asian communities. Min is called a kyopo. Is that mm -hmm. how you pronounce it? So it's a Korean born outside of Korea, and he's always exoticized for his American looks and his very American ways. And I thought it was interesting that you had him work at Samsung in Seoul. Like, so there was a tech aspect to that as well. Mm -hmm. And he's appointed as a cultural expert on beauty standards in America. So you had this really, really amusing scene to me where um, <laughs> the point of reference was American Bachelor. I thought uh -huh. that was really funny to me because I don't watch it, but I understand like the cultural capital that the show has on people. Um, throughout the book, you seem to indicate that there are obvious contradictions that men is othered while also saying that South Korea is a country of being homogenized. It's also mm -hmm. another homogenized country. And Amer American values are revered, especially, and we've kind of alluded to this by Eugene's father. What other tensions that you're pointing at and what did you hope to capture in your novel? So first of all, Samsung doesn't have a, I guess his official title is what he's like a cultural yeah. attache or something, mm -hmm. but, and Samsung certainly doesn't actually have a department like this, but mm -hmm. in initial and in early drafts, I mean, there were like chapters upon chapters of men working at this place and the book was also much funnier or I, I've like enjoyed making it funny. And those chapters ended up getting cut way, way down just because I don't think it fit with the rest of the the tone of, of the book. But I was just interested in exploring. I mean, there's so many tensions when it comes to kind of South Korea and Western, but specifically mm -hmm. American culture. It's kind of weird now because, I mean, now Korean culture is kind of, well, I should say you're. Korean pop culture is so almost yeah. ubiquitous in the States mm -hmm. where you have BTS and all this other stuff. Um, yeah, I think there's almost this, now it's kind of happening in reverse, but when I was there in, in 2009, and, and I think even, even now, 
there's this sense of it's reverential, right? That Americans, specifically white Americans, are looked upon, I think, with admiration, right? With envy, specifically, you know, when it comes to beauty standards, right? There's this very like specific Western ideal of how, what a beautiful face is. And Min is kind of caught in the middle of all of this. Like that phrase you used, uh, Kyopo, I'm not even sure if Kyopo can apply to Min because he's biracial. So there's mm -hmm. also this tension where that term is used for basically, what would you say, like full ethnic Koreans that are born outside Korea. But mm -hmm. then I'm not even sure if they have a term for like biracial mm -hmm. Koreans. But yeah, Min is kind of all caught up in this whole mess because he is both, I should say probably, no one in Korea sees him as Korean, right? I mean, he's mm -hmm. very much American if you're thinking about nationality in terms of nationality. And I also think the way that ethnicity is understood in Korea, no one would say you're half Korean. They would just say you're not Korean. I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of the understanding of it. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about La Dolce Vita later, but yes. like one of, one of the things that Min, I think, has to come to terms with is his complicity, right? Mm -hmm. That he's working for a company, a Korean company, but in a division that is kind of like espousing and promoting the idea that that things like The Bachelor and kind of what we would kind of deem, I don't know, lowbrow. Right. I, I'm going to get yelled at for that. But uh, clearly I know The Bachelor since I wrote about it. But basically it's, you know, mainstream Western media, right? And like promoting mm -hmm. that is something that's really valuable and important. Mm -hmm. And I think he has to come to terms with what that means, right? And what, what his mm -hmm. responsibility is. But I think those are very real tensions. And, and it's also kind of geopolitical too, right? That you have American soldiers stationed in Korea, essentially occupying it, but I think also protecting it. So there's, there's also this resentment towards the American military where we resent you for being here, but we are also very aware that North Korea can shell Seoul with artillery. I think since the war in Ukraine, like mm -hmm. that has become a very real understanding, right? That that the US military is there. They are mm -hmm. based in South Korea. They can quote unquote protect it, but I can also see from the other perspective, right? They are essentially occupying it. Right? They basically haven't left. Um, so there's all sorts of kind of pushes and pulls and um, what you would refer to as kind of tensions where it's one thing, but it's another. But I don't know where I stand on on all of it, only that I was interested in exploring it, right? Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that was very important for me, but it was also difficult, is kind of writing about this stuff, but then also making sure that people understood that Korea is like 98 or 99% uh, homogeneous. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're dealing with a very homogenized group of people that is incredibly different than America. Mm -hmm. Like it's very easy for us to look at them. They have, you know, they've got a great economy. When we look at them, I think it's easy to say as Americans, like they're not that different from us, which is true. <laughs> but then I think when we look at other things like social issues or racial issues or all of these other things, it gets really complicated because I think we often project like our Western multicultural values on them. 
without fully understanding what it means to be in a country where like 99% of the people not mm-hmm. just like look like you, but are ethnically like share the same background as you. Right. And then you allow glimpses of men's life in the United States too. I'm remembering when when he moved to New York and, mm-hmm. and what was it? Like someone filed a complaint about a joke he made and then... Oh, yeah, yeah. He gets a complaint from HR or something yeah. that he's, you know... So like, there are moments where we kind of have men's assessment on work and life because it seems we know what he did in the United States and then he moved for a different tech job in, in, um, in Seoul when you were writing that, giving us a memory in his previous life experiences in the United States. Was that supposed to be a contrast to his, his work life in Seoul? I don't know. It certainly could be. I don't think mm-hmm. when I was consciously writing it, I think the important thing for me, and this is probably more of a, a craft point than a mm-hmm. character point, but I didn't see him as someone that that felt comfortable anywhere. And I didn't see him as someone that felt like he fit in anywhere. And, you know, he's a native uh, Angelino. So he's mm-hmm. from Los Angeles and he goes to New York upon graduating. And just anecdotally, my mom is from LA. So one side of my family is from LA. And I just know for, for Asian people in LA and California that come out to the East coast, it's like major culture shock because there mm-hmm. just aren't as many Asians on the East coast. And so that's something that Min kind of has to face right away is the realization that New York is very different from Los Angeles mm-hmm. and that the East coast, specifically New England is kind of very different from this childhood that he had. Mm-hmm. So in speaking more about men and then his background, there's a point in the middle part of your book where he thinks of his privilege in America. So he's in Seoul and he's just reflecting and he's asking what his struggles are when he's thinking about his ancestors and then their classification as second-class citizens in the Mm -hmm. United States. This sentiment seems to be also shared by Eugene, who considers her privileged upbringing at the final parts of her testimonies at the end of the book, she, this really struck me, she refers to herself as a lucky one because she had loving parents and lived in a stable home. And this is despite the kind of parental expectations imposed by her mm-hmm. father. Um, I'm curious what you're trying to say about privilege in this specific aspect within the two characters, because I, I consider your book as something that kind of tries to talk about the difficulties in articulating cultural differences, values, and stagnation. What what does her relationship play into the themes that you're exploring? For men, I think there is this sense of when you're dealing with second, third, and fourth generation immigrants, I think there's a very real understanding that whatever you're going through in terms of acceptance, bullying, whatever kind of difficulties that it pales in comparison, right, to the things that your parents and their parents went through. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think because a lot of times when you're dealing with first generation, you know, families that come over, they're often kind of defined by the challenges that they, right, either succumb to or overcome. The deck is stacked against them, but somehow they, the kind of cliche is they worked really hard, they mm-hmm. pulled themselves up and and now they're getting to send their kids to, to college or they're getting to, you know, 
they have some success further down the line in their generation. So I think for men specifically, it's a question of if I'm not defined, if I'm not defined by the struggles similar to my parents, how do I kind of define myself, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's also just something that a lot of people of color in America who have, I don't know, first, second, third generation parents, there's a sense of guilt, right? That you know that you have it a lot easier than your parents mm -hmm. did. Um, and yet maybe I think we also have all sorts of different expectations than our parents and our grandparents for like what we want in terms of like a good and satisfying life. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's something that Min is, Min is really struggling with and and trying to both be grateful for the sacrifices, right? Mm -hmm. That his kind of grandparents made for him, but also to not be so beholden to them that he okay. lives an unsatisfying life and doesn't let those expectations kind of sway him. Um, for Eugen, it's specifically, so it's related, I, I think, to the Korean War. And to know that I have a roof over my head, I have enough food, um, and that unlike my family or my parents, like I didn't struggle and certainly kind of their struggles specifically related to the war and to mm -hmm. kind of the economic fallout that Korea experiences. And Eugene's outlook, I think is, is different from Min specifically because she is Korean and she's living in Korea. And there's a much more that idea of kind of filial piety and of, mm -hmm. of doing right by your parents and of upholding your kind of family name those pressures are much greater, I think. And because Korea is so small, because it's so insular, and because there is such a kind of small percentage of students that do go to these elite schools, I think there's a lot more pressure on her. And I mm -hmm. think her outlook is definitely not twisted, but it's like deeply affected by I think when she thinks of herself as lucky, I think it's easy for us to say, uh, I'm not sure. Like there are a lot yeah. of ways in which you're not lucky, but I think from her perspective, she is. And perhaps that's because her parents have told her. And I think compared to how her parents might've grown up, yes, she is lucky. Like she has food and she has these other things. Um, but that's also something that I think the book is interested in exploring, right? What are the different types of, of responsibilities that fall on each generation. Mm -hmm. And it probably isn't helpful for us to grade them and rank them and say, well, the struggles that I overcame are far greater than these. So therefore, you know, it, it's probably not helpful to do that. And yet I think pretty much every generation kind of, mm -hmm. we do tend to actually do that within families. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting too, to think of Eugen's parents. Um, was Her father was lower class, right? Mm -hmm. And her mother yeah. was. So yeah. there's already that tension. Yeah. yeah. I really like the idea of how, what would you consider Eugen? Her generation thinks about responsibilities mm -hmm. rather than kind of, I don't think throughout the book there was any sense of intergenerational trauma, even I think, mm -hmm. though I think men kind of alludes to it when he's thinking about what does it mean for my ancestors to have right. endured hardships. But I think that was a, that's an interesting way to think about inheritances versus mm -hmm. responsibilities. Because on my podcast, I think a lot about inheritances rather than how do we view responsibility. And I, I think... Mm. I think that's an interesting point that you had made. So you alluded to it, and I really want to talk about La Dolce Vita. <laughs> I wonder, because film is something that Eugene falls in love with, and she 
she keeps that a secret from her parents. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to ask you about the significance maybe for you or the reason why you included that as something that kind of signals a change in Eugen's interest and in how she sees creative art rather than just kind of like on track scheduling to go from point A to point B. Um, why did you choose the film specifically? So I I should, this is probably pulling back the curtain a little too much, but I think for me, like, it's just a movie that I, I remember seeing it when mm-hmm. I was younger and I was like, what is this? You know, at least for me, my parents would rent classical black and white movies. That was the only thing I was allowed to watch, which is kind of weird. <laughs> I just remember very specific scenes from my childhood watching it. And I love Italy. I love Italian food. And I love those. I love those old films. It was kind of one of those things like it was always the film that she fell in love with. And it wasn't until I did, like I thought about it a little bit more. And I tend to not really try to outline too much when I'm writing. So mm-hmm. the, it, it made it in there in an early draft. And then in subsequent drafts, I went back and kind of I watched the film again. I read about it. I did some more nerdy research. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was like, oh, this fits. It's perfect because, mm-hmm. you know, at least from my perspective, like Marcello's trying to figure out, I don't know when was the last time you saw the film, but he's trying to figure out, do I want to do tabloid journalism or do I want to study, do I want to be more like intellectual, right? Mm-hmm. Like literature. So for me, that was very much like Min's decision. He has to choose between, does he want to keep kind of working for Samsung and, and kind of promoting tabloid news, et cetera, or does he want to try to strive for something else. Similarly for Eugen, I don't think I'm giving away too much, but does she have to choose? It boils down to an authentic or inauthentic life, right? When the chips are down, which path do you take? I'm mixing my metaphors now. And the other other element that ended up connecting that I really enjoyed, I guess too, um, is, you know, Italy experienced a similar, so in Korea, they refer to it as the miracle on the Han, the Han being the river, but essentially Korea is devastated by the war and they have this incredible economic recovery to the point now where they, like they had some of the fastest economic growth within like 20 years of any country. And it is referred to as like this economic miracle. Similarly, Italy had this type of like economic boom after the war where you've got cafes and glitz and glamour and there's all this hedonism and, you know, living life to the fullest. So not that those are comparable, but one of the things that I was tangentially interested in in the book is that because Korea has grown economically so quickly, I mean, to literally go from like agriculture and agrarian stuff to like Samsung computer chips within 30 years, right? 20 years. It's just crazy. What strains does that put on the social mores of of the culture or what Mm -hmm. types of pressures in Fellini? And again, I haven't seen it a long time, but like the question of religion, what religious values are we losing? If all we're doing is drinking and partying, where do our religious values play a role? Um, So that was one aspect, which is probably more intellectual. The other one was just that for me, the film is very much interested in femininity Mm -hmm. and what it means to kind of be a beautiful woman, accept your beauty, or Mm -hmm. what are the risks and costs of also being a beautiful woman. And I think that's something that Eugene is like very much interested in exploring in the book. Mm -hmm. Have you seen Sorrentino's The Great Beauty? You know, it's so funny. 
I do this thing where if I know that something connects to something I'm working on, I uh-huh. won't, I won't watch it. Uh-huh. And I had a friend recommend that to me about seven or eight years ago. And I watched the trailer mm-hmm. and I was like, I can't watch this movie while I'm writing the book. Um, oh, but yeah. because I suspect that it very much relates to like a lot of the stuff that yes. I was uh-huh. interested in exploring. Mm-hmm. So now I can actually go, you reminded me, now I can go back and watch yeah. it. But did you see connections between yeah. that? I think um, some people consider The Great Beauty as um, a 2000s update yeah. of JV So I think okay. a lot of what you're saying is what Sorrentino captured in the in his kind of revisioning of that story, except it's even more glitzy. Like, mm. um, I think there's a commentary on posing as an intellectual amidst the kind of the decays of glam as mm. if that's intention with the intellect. Right. I think the idea is maybe they're not disconnected and, and it becomes a performance though that people mm. try to keep up. So, Yeah, I'm going to have to watch that now because I, I remember my friend recommended it to me and then I watched the trailer and mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I can't watch this movie while I'm writing the book, yeah, which is yeah. something. So now that I'm done, I, I'll go back and watch it. <laughs> Decompress from your writing. Yeah. I know your book is, is released now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I read the advanced reader copy. I wonder if you made any big changes to it or how does that work? Um, very little. There was like some proofreading. There were a couple like minor word choice changes. But mm-hmm. for the most part, the copy that you got is pretty much how, how the book is, at least I hope. Okay. Well, <laughs> I guess if I ever see you at a bookstore, I'll have you sign a physical <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. And maybe we can just yeah, no, we can arrange to get you a copy because you're you're in Germany, right? Yeah, right now. But, you know, uh, I think I can order through the UK through. A, oh, OK. Yeah. That there's a sense. partnership. So though I have okay. to pay like a tax, but, you know, <laughs> whatever. Of course. <laughs> I want to ask you, how has the reception been so far, especially during this kind of month of recognizing AAPI authors? Like, what has the discourse been for you? Have have any kind of questions caught you by surprise? Or can you tell me your experiences? This is your debut, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's been great. I try to like not read all the review or the online stuff, but you know, and no one's ever going to say anything mean to your face. Everyone that that's talked to me at the events has been really great. I think the the AAPI or the Asian Heritage. I think it'll be interesting to see. I guess, how the book is received within that framework. Um, I also feel like no one has ever made me feel this way, but I often Mm -hmm. feel like a bit of an imposter within that crowd because I am biracial. So Mm -hmm. not that I'm advocating for us to have our own month or something, but but I think there are other writers where I think, yeah, it makes sense. They fit. But, um, and I think that's, that's purely me like projecting, but I think, the response has been great. I mean, you know, one of the things that was very difficult about writing the book was that I'm writing for an audience that predominantly isn't very familiar with Korean culture. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of work in the book was edits, I should say, were related to, you want to treat your reader with respect, um, but you also don't so you don't want to give them like a textbook, right? Mm-hmm. And say, here's Korean culture 101, and now you can go read my novel. So you have to find a way to weave 
information about Korea into the book, but in a way that the reader understands what you're talking about, but also without kind of like just informing or educating yeah. them. But you also don't want to swing the other way and just, you know, kind of leave to say, I'm just going to say everything and I don't really care about my audience because then some of your mm -hmm. readers might be lost, right? They might say, well, I, I don't know these terms or I don't know what, what are all these like things they're eating, et cetera. So that was kind of a balancing act. And I think the response for readers has been good in that sense that people feel like they're getting a glimpse of Korean culture, but they mm -hmm. don't feel like they're lost. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do think the, the one thing that will be interesting to see down the road is just we are talking about how Korea is kind of like 98 to 90% homogenous. And there was, there was a news article, I think it was last year or something, but there was outrage over like South Korea not accepting refugees from Syria. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, every country should accept refugees, but it's just like trying to explain to someone that a country that with 98%, yeah. like not accepting refugees is a very understandable thing from their perspective, right? Mm -hmm. um, and when you don't have these countries that are deeply multicultural and deeply diverse, there are just going to be like beliefs that are, I think, strongly held that from like an American perspective right. are problematic, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. So some of the book, I think, um, I, I hope that people kind of understand that when I'm painting some of the more problematic or like difficulties in Korean culture, that they understand that it is like a unique culture unto itself. And we probably shouldn't be projecting our own kind of American yeah. judgments and stuff. Well, as you were saying that, I'm remembering the scene where Min is talking to his coworkers. Mm -hmm. What was his name? The one who was... So Wu, Wu Jin? Yes. Like, yeah. I, yeah. I, poor poor Wu like, Jin. He just couldn't... Not maybe understand is not the right word, but I'm remembering when... Um, Comprehend. Yeah, Min was trying to... There was a passage where he's luring us as the reader into thinking about homosexuality in Korea mm -hmm. and how the, his coworker maybe was clueless? Not clueless. Yeah. How would you... Yeah, so clueless. They're very delicate weavings that I think you provided through Min, but Min never really... He, it was kind of his reflections and not so much that like mm -hmm. he was speaking down yeah. to. So I thought that was actually handled very delicately. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad it was. Um, yeah, there's a similar moment in the novel too, I think, where Wu Jin, he's explaining to him that if he's in LA, people will think he's American, right? Mm -hmm. And that idea is very strange to him because he's mm -hmm. like, ethnically, I'm Korean. Why would anyone think that I would be American? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that, that it's another kind of layer right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of added on. And the fact that Min is American, but he's working in this Korean company and he's working, he's living in Korea. But as you kind of referenced, the thing that is often that people like the most about him is that he is American, right? Mm -hmm. um, even though he kind of came to Korea to kind of get away from his Americanness, which is right. like a whole other, mm -hmm. whole other thing. Mm -hmm. Well, soon, maybe this is too sudden to ask i'm wondering if you're thinking about next book project or anything in the horizon no yeah not to sudden out but yeah i'm working on a second book it's very different from this book in in terms of settings so it's set in the midwest at a university but similarly i'm interested in kind of messing around with genres and and trying my best to write i think what i hope to be works of literary merit with some mm -hmm. 
level of kind of mystery or or genre kind of piece. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so that's that's in the works. Midwest, huh? Um, I grew up in Arkansas, so I'm very. Where did Where did you grow up in Arkansas? Fayetteville, Arkansas. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, so I went to graduate school in Kansas, in Wichita. Mm-hmm. Um, and my yeah. best friend, my roommate there, and he grew up in Batesville, Arkansas, which um, probably probably makes Fayetteville look like uh, New York City. But um, you You're know. giving Fayetteville too much credit. <laughs> um, I I weirdly I, this is controversial take. So I was in Wichita before I, I was in Chicago. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed my time in Kansas. I was there for three years. So mm-hmm. it was probably, I was looking at it through rose-colored glasses because yeah. I knew that I was probably leaving. I like I like Kansas when I was, I mean, <laughs> there were more Asian stores, which mm. was really lacking in, in Arkansas yeah. at the time. And I remember that we would just go there to visit. My parents are Vietnamese, so we had a lot of Vietnamese. Yeah, there. I was going to yeah. say Wichita has a huge yeah. um, Vietnamese population because mm-hmm. a lot of them were resettled there. Mm-hmm. So soon. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book. And I hope that um, I'll have you back on for the next second novel. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Pressure's on. I got to finish it. No, no, anytime. <laughs> so good luck with the rest of your book tour and congratulations on a really great book. I really great. enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Anna. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnAnnaDroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.